Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. This is episode number three of The Next Track. And whether you're listening to this episode in a web browser or a mobile podcast app or iTunes, you're listening to a digital audio file, an MP3, actually. And as you're probably aware, MP3 is just one of many types of audiophile formats. Yeah, this is something I get a lot of email about. Um, people are familiar with a couple of audiophile formats, and then they hear different format names and they ask questions. So let's give people an overview. What are the different file types? What do they mean? Which should you use? When would you use one type and when would you use another? Right. And a good starting point might be where most people probably first encounter having to make a decision about file formats, and that's when ripping an audio CD. Yeah, so a CD actually does not contain audio files. It contains data in what's called PCM format. That means pulse code modulation. It's basically just a bunch of ones and zeros, and it's continuous from the beginning to the end of the CD. The only way a CD player or iTunes knows where a track starts and ends is reading some catalog information at the beginning of the CD, which tells how many frames there are in each song. A frame is a way of measuring the amount of data um, I'm not exactly sure how big a frame is, but they're very small. So a song will have hundreds of thousands of frames. So when you put a CD into your CD player, your home CD player, uh, your car CD player, iTunes, you'll notice the device has to read for a couple of seconds before it can display anything. Even if it's not iTunes getting track names from the internet, even a home CD player needs to read the catalog and calculate before it can say, you know, this is track one. There's how many tracks there are. All right. So you say there are no audio files on an audio CD. So then what's really going on when I rip a bunch of files from a CD in iTunes, for example? Right. So iTunes and any other app that can read um, a CD and rip a CD knows to basically slice and dice the data that's on the CD in accordance with that catalog information. The catalog information says, here's where the file begins, here's where, the, where it ends. I'm going to read this data. I'm going to write some headers around it. Header is a computer thing. Um, it's what tells the computer that something's a file. Here's the beginning, here's the end. So it's another sort of catalog type thing. And iTunes will read each particular file. And when it gets to the end of that section on a CD, it'll be saved as a file. Um, iTunes will add information like track names and album names and artist names and all that that it's pulled from the internet. Um, a CD is in a lossless format and its bit rate is 1411 kilobits per second. So 1411K or KBPS. And at that bit rate, that's a, there's a lot of audio in there. There's a lot of sound in there. Well, all the sound that we could possibly hear. Um, in another show, we'll talk about high-resolution music files, which do offer the ability to, hear f to, to store frequencies that are higher than what humans can hear. So higher than 20,000 hertz. Basically, it's frequencies for dogs and hamsters and bats. Um, humans don't really need them, but that's a topic for another show. Yeah, if you're listening to this episode expecting to hear information about how bats and hamsters listen to music, sorry, it's another show. So that 1411 kilobit file is, if you were to copy that directly onto your computer and not rip it, you could save it as what's called an A for a WAV file. So AIFF, Audio Interchange File Format, and WAV, W-A-V, which is Waveform Audio Format. 
Wave is commonly used on Windows. AFE is commonly used on Mac. They're virtually identical except for the headers that define the files. I mentioned headers earlier. Um, it's just the, the, the generic catalog information that says to the computer, this is a file. So that's what you have on your CD. Now, when you rip it with iTunes, we'll use iTunes as an example, um, as we'll do in most episodes here, because we're both people who work a lot with iTunes, but there are plenty of other apps that can rip your CDs. When you rip an iTunes, you have a number of choices for audio file formats. So I've just explained what WAVE and AFE are. They are uncompressed audio files. They contain, as as you said a minute ago, as much audio as, as possible without being in high resolution. It's 10 megs a minute. They're, they're very large files. It's 10 megabytes per minute. And if you think about a CD is containing about 700 megabytes, um, a CD contains roughly 70 you can get as much as nearly 80 minutes these days, so it would be about 800 megabytes. Um, but on average, a CD is 600 to 700 megabytes, and so the A for WAV files from a CD would be that large. Very large. Now, some people actually rip in A and WAV formats. Um, there's really no point in doing that because there are equivalent lossless formats. I'll get to that in just a second, but first, one of the problems with AFIN WAV files in iTunes, particularly WAV files, is they don't store tags very well. And that's the metadata that you add uh, an album name, a song name, uh, album artwork. If you take them out of iTunes, you'll lose the metadata. Um, maybe not all of it, depending if you have iTunes um, saving the track name as the file name, that'll be retained. But every once in a while, I get an album from a music PR person in WAV files, and they think, oh, we're going to give the best quality files. And you put it in iTunes, it's track one, track two, track three, etc. AFE files do store a little bit more metadata, but they're problematic for metadata. Um, the, the other problem, of course, is they take up much more space. Now, in iTunes, you can save files in a format called Apple Lossless. And this is a format that Apple created some time ago that they released as open source in 2011. Apple Lossless retains the exact same musical data from the CD or from the WAV or AFE files, but compresses it in a lossless format. Okay, we're going to be tossing these terms around a lot, lossless and lossy. What in general is meant by lossless and what is meant by lossy? So... Lossless compression is like when you have a, a word processing file and you compress it into a zip file. Um, let's say you have the text of Shakespeare's Hamlet, for example, and you compress it. When you decompress the file, you don't want to be losing words. You don't want to lose um, Ophelia's speeches. You don't want to lose the scene where Polonius gets killed. Spoiler! Um, so you want to have exactly the same thing that comes out of the compressed file as what goes into it. That's lossless compression. Now, lossy compression, which it started before MP3 files, but MP3 was the most common for a long time, it uses principles of what's called psychoacoustics, which are basically an understanding of how we hear music, that there are certain frequencies we can't hear, there are certain frequencies we don't hear well. Um, for example, some lossy compression formats use what's called joint stereo, that the very lowest frequencies are recorded in only one track as if they're in mono because the actual physical length of a sound wave when you get to those frequencies is so long, we wouldn't be able to detect if it's coming from the right speaker or the left speaker. So there's no point in doubling it. There's also a lot of compression going on in both lossy and lossless that 
reduces repeated information. So if you have silence, that can be compressed to almost nothing. If you have a continuous tone, that can be compressed as well because it's repeated. But lossy compression, it essentially removes some of the musical information, but mostly music that you really can't hear. I have to admit here that years ago when I first started working with compression formats, while I understood the two uh, concepts of lossless and lossy, I would confuse the terms all the time. So I had to force myself to remember that lossless compression is like boneless. When you buy a boneless steak, there's no bones. So likewise, with lossless compression, there's no loss. On the other hand, lossy files, they have so much loss, they are lossy. I mean, they're wicked lossy. So that was the way I tried to force myself to remember the two concepts and making sure I linked them with the same terms. In iTunes, AAC and MP3 are lossy compression formats, and obviously Apple Lossless is a lossless format. Right. Now, how much loss is there? I think the best example is to use the AAC format, which is the default in iTunes. AAC is not, as many people think, a format that Apple created. They tend to think because of the A, or the two A's in it, um, Apple is one of those words, it means advanced audio coding. It's technically part of the MP4 standard, which is the sequel to the MP3 format. If you were to rip a CD in AAC format at 256K, which is, that's the, the bit rate that Apple uses on the iTunes store. If you were to do a blind test listening to a CD and listening to that rip, you probably couldn't hear the difference between the two. And that's a tribute to the quality and efficiency of the AAC algorithm, even though it's lossy, like MP3, and a lot of data is removed during the compression process, the sound quality is, is really good. You really need very, very good audio equipment and golden ears to hear the difference. It's that good. So your first option in choosing which files to rip is to choose between lossless and lossy. Now, we've gone through big changes in storage capacity. Remember that very first iPod, a thousand songs in your pocket and five gigabytes? Well, that was using 128K MP3 files. AAC wasn't used at the time yet in iTunes. Um, a thousand files and five megabytes. That's amazing. Now, if I look at my Grateful Dead, my, let's see, I think it's 12 CDs, five concerts that I ripped yesterday, it's about four gigabytes in lossless. So that would have almost filled up the first um, iPod. Well, that obviously isn't a thousand songs. It's not a thousand songs. It's no. 99 songs to be exact. Yeah. Some of them quite long, 12 minutes, 16 minutes, you know, Grateful Dead concerts. But when we originally had to worry about storage, we were using very low bit rates. We were using 128, 96, even 64, because, you know, when you had one of those early players, even pre-iPod with an SD card, and you had, I don't know, 100 megabytes that you could put on it, you wanted to squeeze as much music as possible. And it didn't really sound good, did it? Uh, no, not really. But I think most casual users probably didn't care. I mean, the default settings on a lot of rippers was 128 MP3 at 44. And uh, so they just ripped at that. I got, I was a little pickier than that. Well, what did you rip at back in the day? Uh, originally, originally, back in the last century, I probably ripped everything at 128 MP3. And then when AAC came along, I ripped at 128 AAC. But then I switched to 160 AAC because I had the room. And I thought that was a good compromise between uh, quality and file size. So I ripped at 160 for a long time. Yeah, so that's exactly what I did for ages. I, I picked 160. And I did blind tests at the time. And I tested like 128 and 160 and 192 and 256. 
And I could hear a difference between the 160 and the 256, but it wasn't that jarring. Uh, and I figured I'd rather go for a quantity. Um, a few years ago, I switched to 256 because it's just, we have the storage. Yeah, having more storage nowadays is really the difference. It's only been fairly recently that people have a 100% digital file library. For a long time, a person's primary library was their CD collection, and they only ripped stuff in order to take it with them on a device. You know, it wasn't for critical listening, it was just for casual listening. So at some point in iTunes history, I don't remember exactly when, um, an option was added to iTunes to allow you to convert higher bitrate songs to a specific bitrate. With that, and with the fact that storage is cheap these days, I now rip and lossless everything new. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that. It's not so much the quality, I can't hear the difference between 256 and lossless, but you end up with an archival quality of an audio file that you can always convert to a lower bitrate, as I do when I automatically sync my music to my devices. I have re-ripped some of my music from 160 to 256 and re-ripped some of it from 256 to lossless. I don't want to ever have to do that again. Yeah, I've been doing that too, ripping everything as Apple lossless. Um, I found that every three or four years as I updated to larger hard drives, I'd take advantage of having more space and I'd re-rip a lot of CDs to a, a higher bit rate. What I've been doing is just do one last rip as lossless, boxed up the CDs and put them in a closet and get them out of the way. It just makes it easier keeping everything as files. Yeah, it does. It'll save time in the future. Now, a question I get often um, by email from readers is, well, I've got these um, 256K AAC files. If I convert them to Apple Lossless in iTunes, will they sound better? Unfortunately, lossy compression is a one-way street. You can't go back. Um, it's like you mix the water in the wine, you can't take the water back out. Um, so no, you can't do that. You really, you really need to choose lossless if you want lossless. And, and, you know, most people probably don't need lossless, but if you are listening to this podcast, you're probably a serious music fan already. You've probably got a big library and lossless makes a lot more sense. So a lot of people also wonder if you can upcode. That is, if I have a 128 and I convert it to 256K, will it sound as good? And no, you can't because you can't restore audio data that's been thrown away at the lower bit rate. Yeah, it's like you can't, um, so you can get what's called an upscaling DVD player that reads a DVD at, what is it, 480 lines in the States, um, and it can display it at 1080, but all it's doing is interpolating the pixels, basically a little bit more than doubling the pixels, but it doesn't give it the sharpness of a Blu-ray disc. But you can't do that in music. So, I think it's safe to say that most of our listeners do use iTunes, but a lot of people don't. And there are other formats that they may be familiar with or they may have heard the names of, the most common being FLAC, Free Lossless Audio Codec. It's very similar to Apple Lossless. It's a lossless format. You compress the music from a CD, you play it back, and it's decompressed exactly as it was on the CD. Is it virtually identical to ALAC except for header information and things like that? Or is there a completely different algorithm? And I think the algorithm's different. Um, th there you get into complicated math that I don't understand. Um, because there, there are multiple layers of compression when you're dealing with lossless compression. Um, redundancies... Um, uh, repeating things that come at different places, frequency reduction, I have no idea. It, there's probably a good Wikipedia article that'll explain it. Um, now, iTunes has never supported FLAC. 
And my thought has always been that Apple's worried about a potential patent troll lawsuit. So one of these companies who claims, oh, we have a patent on this and you've been using it and you've got 800 million people using this and we're going to sue you. Is that why Apple released their own lossless format as open source? So that was a change that Apple made in part to get more people to adopt Apple lossless. And, and here's a reason why. If you... Uh, stream music using AirPlay to a third-party device, not an Apple device. Um, what iTunes does is it converts the um, it converts the music, whatever you have, it converts it to Apple Lossless. It's not making it better. It's just making a sort of a benchmark format that anything can read. And then the device that plays back the AirPlay is reading the Apple Lossless and converting it into audio. So that device doesn't need well, that device will probably be able to read MP3 files, but it doesn't need to pay for an MP3 license if it doesn't want to, if that makes sense. Another thing, too, about MP3 and licensing, Apple licenses the Fraunhofer codec, which is the MP3 codec, uh, and it's used in iTunes and Logic and probably GarageBand. I'm not positive. Um, otherwise, if you're a software developer and you have uh, audio software and you want to have MP3 encoding, most of them will encourage their users to download the lame encoder and use it for personal use. Otherwise, if they had included the lame encoder with their software, they'd have to pay the licensing for it. So that's how they get around uh, paying for licenses, which can be pretty hefty. Okay. Um, and same in QuickTime, you can't export from QuickTime into MP3. Correct. You've never been able to export from QuickTime as MP3. Right, because of the licensing. And right. the licensing, they, Apple would have to pay the licensing even if people don't use it. Correct. So uh, so FLAC is a very popular format. Um, it's extremely popular among people who trade live music, like you know Grateful Dead concerts and other live music. It's very popular among download sites. And I mean, legal download sites, record labels that sell their music in lossless formats, they'll very often sell it in FLAC. Um, they've only picked up Apple lossless in the past couple of years, again, because Apple made it open source and, you know, there was no licensing required. So, so I think the reason Apple doesn't support FLAC and iTunes is that they're worried about a patent troll coming in and suing them, saying, well, we own a patent to this sort of audio compression and you've got 800 million devices and we're going to sue you. Um, Microsoft didn't support FLAC for a long time. I don't think Windows natively supports FLAC either. You have to get a FLAC hack. You either have to use a third-party app or a plug-in. Same boat that Apple users are in. If you do get FLAC files, and I buy FLAC files from Bandcamp and other places like that, you can just convert them to Apple lossless. It's really the same. I mean, it's got a different name and all that, and the compression is calculated differently, but you don't lose anything. So if you convert it, um, the FLAC file gets read, gets converted to a lossless uncompressed file, like an AVE file, and then reconverted to Apple lossless. Um, the app I always recommend is called XLD or X Lossless Decoder. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's a free app by a Japanese developer. It's extremely well done. It can read and write in a dozen formats. Wave, AVE, different PCM formats, Wave 64, DirectStream Digital, that's the format that's used in uh, Super Audio CDs, FLAC, MPEG-4 HEAAC. That's um, high-efficiency AAC. That's also an option in iTunes import settings. It's really good quality at very low bit rates, mostly used for voice. Um, it has a lame MP3 
um, codec. So LAME is one of the better MP3 codecs. It's an open source. So that's more formats than you would ever need. Pretty much. And XLD is free. Now, there's another funny sounding format that isn't very popular. It's called OG Vorbis. That's called O-G-G-V-O-R-B-I-S. Um, Spotify uses OG Vorbis, strangely enough. I forgot about that. Yeah, it's an open source format. I think it's somehow related to FLAC, and, and we'll put some links in the show notes with Wikipedia articles and more information about this. Um, it's, a, it's a lossy compressed format, and it's open source, and iTunes doesn't support it. Um, it's not very common. I don't see Ogvorbis files. If you buy something from Bandcamp, they offer like every format but Ogvorbis. I have to admit that uh, back in the early days of Ogvorbis, I was a somewhat of an Ogvorbis snob, but uh, ooh, open source, ooh, high quality. But um, iTunes never supported it, so I just stopped using it. Yeah, so you can play Ogvorbis po- files on Android devices, I think. Um, probably even Windows. So a lot of these compression formats were initially made for sending voice over wires. That's right, phone lines. Um, gee, it was probably 20 years ago I started using MP3. I used to work in a, at a production studio for a radio station, and we would master all of our stuff down to wave, which was fine if you were just going to use it locally, but frequently we had to send... Uh, stuff out to other radio stations or to some of our other facilities. So we'd convert it to MP3 and send it over a phone line. We had a special device all hooked up to do that. But it never occurred to us that someday in the future, we'd actually have our entire music collection on MP3 or some compressed format. It was it was just a tool. It was like zip for audio. Doug, do you know what the first mass-produced digital audio player was? Uh, I do not. It was the Audible Player. Audible? It, it was also called Mobile Player or Digital Words to Go. It was made by Audible in 1998 for audiobooks. Oh, yeah, it was, a, it was a small thing. It was a tiny little device, and I had one maybe in 1999. Um, it initially had four megabytes of memory, which was about two hours of audiobooks. Audiobooks at very low bit rates, usually. Uh, back then, they were using like eight, ki- eight kilobits. Sure. And now they're, now they're at 32 or 64. Um, it had really simple controls, just a couple of buttons. It was a little bit bigger than an iPod Shuffle, um, but that was really the first MP3 player that was popular. The first one I ever used was um, the Rio. I think I could use it with Sound Jam, and I think I could use it with early versions of iTunes. I think it only held about 20 or 30 songs. I think I ended up giving it to my daughter as a toy. That was later in 1998, the Rio PMP300 from Diamond Multimedia. It had 32 megabytes. You could add expansion cards to it, though. And then, of course, Creative came out with things in 2000, Arcos, and then the iPod came out in 2001. But the earliest consumer use of digital compressed files was for audiobooks. And that, well, it's interesting because when you look at, when you compare what, what people were doing before that for audiobooks, they were using cassette tapes. They were maybe using CDs, but cassette tapes at that point were still more popular for audiobooks. Well, also, you had to have a lot of them. You had to carry a box of them around. Exactly. If you wanted to listen to a long book, you had to have 20, 50, 100 tapes. Now, that shifted over to CD, but it took a while. And so audio was really uh, an innovator as far as that was concerned. My, 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 look at the time. So so you've got five formats you can use on iTunes. I, I don't recommend you use WAVE or AFE, so that leaves three. Whether you use AAC or MP3 depends on what you're going to play your music on. A few years ago, I would have 
been more hesitant to recommend AAC to everyone, but now most players support AAC. Um, I do recommend Apple Lossless if you have the space and want an archival um, format file. As for bit rates, well, if you're using Apple Lossless, you don't worry about it because it's the highest bit rate. For anything else, I'd recommend using what iTunes calls the iTunes Plus setting. It's 256K. It's very good quality. Um, and other than that, don't get obsessed about your audio file formats and your bit rates. A lot of people do. This is all about the music. It's not about um, making sure that everything is just exactly perfect when you rip your CDs. Right. It's not about getting it right, which seems to be what a, a lot of people think is necessary. It's it's really more about how it sounds to you, how and where you'll be playing music. So feel free to experiment with different formats and different settings. You can always delete it and reconvert later. It's, it's software. And hopefully we've given you a little more information to help you make those decisions with your music collection. We'd like to wrap up each episode of the next track with our next tracks. And that's the music that each of us has got ready to play at home. What are you going to be listening to, Kirk? Well, I have a very large classical music library, and recently I pulled out a three-disc set of songs by Franz Schubert. Um, in our first episode, we were talking about the difference between songs and albums, and Schubert, who wrote more than 800 songs, also wrote a few albums, and they're called song cycles. Um, the, the word that's used for this is Lied, which means song in German, or Lieder, which is the plural of song. And Schubert's Lieder is just this massive collection of songs, um, all of which he wrote in a very short life. He died at age 32. He wrote 800 songs between about age 14 and 32. Um, I'm listening to a three-CD set of his three well-known song cycles, Die Schöne Müllerin, Winterreis, and Schwanengesang, sung by the um, English tenor Ian Bostridge. Ian Bostridge is one of these rare classical musicians who wasn't trained as a classical musician who came into singing rather late. Um, he has a very interesting style of singing and I find his tenor voice very refreshing. Often this music is sung by a lower tenor or a baritone. Um, this 3D set also has a DVD of him singing Winterheis in a staged performance, which is pretty dismal. It looks like Murnau directed it. Um, it's not that good, but the music itself is wonderful. Uh, it, there, there are three wonderful pianists um, playing on these recordings. The first one is Mitsuko Uchida, the second is Antonio Papano, and the third one is Life over Ansnes, Norwegian um, pianist. So if you've never heard Schubert's Lieder, this is some of the, the most extraordinary music of the early 19th century, and this is by all means a wonderful recording to, to pick as a first taste. My next track is a collection of greatest hits by Tomita. In case you don't know, Isao Tomita, who recently passed away, was a Japanese music composer and early pioneer of synthesizer music, beginning back in the 60s. Uh, he was one of the more popular electronic artists who, rather than try to emulate real musical instruments, perhaps like in the vein of Wendy Carlos, uh, he was really into imagining new sounds and demonstrated this technique uh, by recording well-known pieces, uh, much like Wendy Carlos's Switched on Bach, but Tomita was a little more out there, a little more ambient, a little more avant-garde. When I was a kid, the first album I ever heard by Tomita that I was enchanted by was something called Snowflakes Are Dancing. It was a collection of Debussy pieces. I haven't been able to find that album, but I did manage to find Tomita's Greatest Hits, which has a few cuts from that, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing it. 
This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.